Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey, sick code, brah, knockreiner. <laughs> On today's episode, we will be discovering, discovering, discussing the latest advancements from Hafnium's evasion and persistence techniques. We'll dive into a, another major alert from CISA on APT tools targeting ICS and SCADA, and then end with what exactly Corey means by sick codes, brah. With that, let's go ahead and skate on in. So let's start this week with an update on yet another nation-state-sponsored hacking organization, uh, this one being Hafnium, which if you remember, uh, they've been around for quite some time, but they really popped out into the spotlight back in March of last year with the whole proxy logon saga, that uh, vulnerability within exchange servers that basically allowed folks to ultimately install a web shell onto these systems. Um, really brought Hafnium into the limelight and really that vulnerability within like, I think 24 hours, just about every threat actor out there was using it to stick web shells on these systems. Um, we gave another update on Hafnium back in November of last year um, with one of their new, at that time, malware variants using the new kind of network or NKN uh, protocol for command and control communications. Uh, really, it seems, it seems like after March of last year, they, they seem to have really, I guess, understandably ticked off Microsoft to the point where Microsoft's uh, threat analysis group has been following them heavily since then. And so just this last week, Microsoft posted an update on a new malware variant called Taurask. I doubt I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, which was developed by Hafnium, uh, which uses unpatched zero-day vulnerabilities as their initial vector and also has this, I say new, it's not really super new, but at least somewhat new evasion and persistence method for uh, keeping their command and control connections firing on an infected system. And so to start with, uh, the why I kind of put new in quotes is that uh, it abuses the Windows task scheduler in order to gain persistence. And that's not really a new method. Like that's been around for quite some time. Malware knows that they can schedule themselves as a task in there in order to uh, be restarted on a, a periodic interval. Basically, Windows Task Scheduler is the service that allows you to perform automated tasks that admins typically use for legitimate purposes. Like you can schedule a browser update or other applications update on there. You can schedule potentially like a report to fire off, things like that. Threat actors, though, also use this as a persistence method in Windows. So that if you like kill their process or like reboot, after you come back online, the next time this task gets fired, it'll turn their malware back on, basically. That isn't new. Pro programs use it too, right? You give an example that administrators use it to do tasks, but sometimes when you install software that adds capabilities that they want to schedule, the software itself can. There, there are non-human ways where scheduled tasks will get added to Windows that are legitimate. 100%. Although it's definitely something, yeah, as you'll find out, you want to look at. You want to know everything that's trying to create a scheduled task on your system. Exactly. So by default, like when you schedule a task like this, it's somewhat visible. I mean, you've got probably like hundreds, between like 100 or 200 or so scheduled tasks on your computer right now if you're a Windows person. Um, but like all of them are visible. Uh, you can use the the scheduled task command line utility to view them, and you can use the task scheduler GUI 
in order to view them as well. Um, and that's because when you add a new task using either that GUI or the SCH tasks command line utility, um, it adds it in a way where it's visible in those programs. So it does that by setting up two registry keys uh, and the task, task, task cache registry path within the HKLM hive on your Windows registry. Uh, one of those keys is in this path called tree, uh, which basically it's the friendly name of the scheduled task. If you see it, it's something like you know Windows Update or uh, Google Update or whatever. Um, within that key, there's a few values. So it's got an ID, which is the GUID, the globally unique ID of that task, a index value, and then this value called the security descriptor or SD which is basically, it's a, it's a small string that kind of tells it which users are allowed to run that task. Uh, the second key it adds is in the tasks path, which the name of it is that GUID from the friendly name of the task. And then this is the one that actually has all of the, the values for like the actions, the path, the triggers, basically everything necessary to facilitate executing that task. Um, the action could be something as simple as like launching a program like you could schedule it to pop up calculator.exe every 30 minutes if you want, or something more complex is say launching PowerShell with an encoded command to then go out and grab a secondary module for your malware. The bottom line is though, these are visible in there and they're visible when you go query them either in the GUI or the command line utility. And then additionally, it pops out a, an XML file uh, in C Windows System 32 tasks with additional metadata about it, including that action from the registry task. So all these are fairly visible, like most endpoint protection or at least like SIM solutions will know to keep an eye out on this and look for potentially suspicious tasks in here. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that a lot of threat hunting teams within cybersecurity organizations know to go look through scheduled tasks periodically too and find something potentially sticking out. Even silly Windows programs like CCleaner allow you to look at your scheduled tasks and your launch programs to see if there's anything unusual. By the way, I think we'll get to this more in the, the mitigations and practical tips, but it is interesting that there is no audit log of a lot of scheduled tasks by default in Windows. Like uh, it, Windows by default won't record an event of a new scheduled task being made, if I understood it right. There's a two, two ways it can happen. You can enable it. So when we get to practical takeaways, I think most people would want to have logs of every time a scheduled task was made because it's something, yes, the tools can go look directly in the registry and find the tasks there. But I think if you manage something like a, a, a SIM or, or anything that's monitoring, you know, keen on when a new scheduled task is added to a computer would be a good thing to do. I'm kind of curious if Microsoft, you know, it, it, we'll get to their advice later, but I wonder if they'll change their OS-wide default in the future. Yeah, I mean, you would think so. And I feel like that's, we'll get to that at the end. Like one of the takeaways Microsoft has is they probably do need to change some of this behavior because what they found Hafnium was doing with their Tarisk malware is it used, uh, it created scheduled tasks for it uh, under the name win update. So if you're just like perusing through the scheduled tasks, it might look like something legitimate. Uh, but then it went and deleted that security descriptor value, that SD value from the tree registry path. And it turns out that deleting that value still allows it to run uh, without any issue, but it makes it disappear from the results of both the command line utility queries, as well as the task scheduler GUI, um, if you were to go to try and find it. So basically it's now this hidden task that is still firing, 
even after reboot, it will still pop up and continue to run. But it is now hidden from most of your main methods of checking out your scheduled tasks. My understanding is that, or maybe that's what you're about to say, the threat actor didn't completely do what they could have done because uh, Microsoft's blog mentions they could have completely removed two registry keys within the trees and the tasks and and made it even more hidden. Uh, and this threat actor didn't do that second one. So, uh, but but by the way, even though you would have removed those registry keys, it still would have run the scheduled task anyways. So yeah, it was definitely interesting to see they're doing stuff to try to hide, but they actually didn't go all the way. Uh, kudos on Microsoft for even sharing the fact that there's more you could do. Hopefully they'll take that into account when they, they fix it as yeah, well. Yeah, that's what they noted is that it turns out if you just go manually remove a bunch of these registry entries after the fact, like the task is still in the task scheduler program and it'll still continuously run at least until the reboot. After a reboot, it won't have those registry keys to be able to know what it needs to load back into the task scheduler. And so while it does help evasion, uh, it would not necessarily help persistence, at least post reboot. But if you just delete that SD value, the security descriptor value, still lets it run, still lets it survive reboots. But now if you were to run like the scheduled tasks query command uh, or open up task scheduler GUI, it's gone. Um, interestingly though, so you can't just run, like use a reg delete command to remove that SD value from the registry entry. Um, so even if like a lower privileged user is the one that originally scheduled this task, you actually need system level privilege privileges to delete that value. And so they found that Tarask was using token theft to obtain the security permissions associated with the LSAS process uh, and then use that to then delete the value. So basically one of the more common methods for elevating your privileges locally on a system and using that to then kind of clean up and hide itself. So like in the end, it's not a overall like brand new method for persistence and that task scheduler is very common for this types of malware. But they seem to be going to new lengths to try and hide themselves in this persistence method, which was new. And at least like Microsoft, like they're the ones that published this. And so they're well aware of the issue. And I'm willing to bet that we'll probably have a patch coming next patch Tuesday to either make it not run with that, that SD value or at least make it still visible within the, the GUIs. Um, they did provide some recommendations. So like Corey mentioned, by default, audit logging is not enabled. Uh, for scheduled tasks when they execute. And so Microsoft recommends updating your Windows audit policy to identify scheduled task actions by enabling logging of the task operational uh, value within that policy. They also recommend periodically just enumerating your whole Windows environment registry hives and looking for entries in that schedule task schedule tree registry uh, that are missing the security descriptor value. Basically, that's not a normal occurrence and if that value is missing from a scheduled tasks registry entry, it is it not necessarily malicious, well, likely malicious, but at least suspicious enough for you to go and investigate after the fact. Uh, they also recommend centralizing your task scheduler logs to make monitoring and identifying hidden tasks easier. And then just good sage advice in general of monitoring for uncommon behavior in outbound communications. Basically, if you can't catch the malware itself on the host, well, maybe you can catch it at the network level as it tries to open up these command and control connections to who knows where. So overall, like interesting and good tips for Microsoft. Not really new tips. Like I feel like 
a lot of at least security professionals know to keep an eye on scheduled tasks, or at least a lot of EPP and EDR products on the endpoint know to keep an eye on those as well. Um, but man, I really feel like Hafnium kind of poked the bear and Microsoft is just at this point trying to air out all of their dirty laundry every time they see a new behavior from them. So looking forward to whatever the next interesting uh, tidbit Microsoft's threat analysis group throws at us from the likes of Hafnium. Uh, so moving on, uh, also just last week, the U.S. Department of Energy, CISA, the NSA, and the FBI all released a joint cybersecurity advisory titled AA22-103A. Hopefully you'll all remember that. Uh, warning that certain advanced persistent threat actors or APT actors have exhibited the capability to gain full system access to multiple industrial control systems and SCADA devices, including those for manufacturers of Schneider Electronic, uh, Omron SysMac, and Open Platform Communications Unified Architecture, or OPC, UA servers. Uh, they noted that these APTs have created custom tools for targeting ICS and SCADA devices that have enabled them to scan, compromise, and control affected devices after their initial access to the operational technology network. Um, this advisory, like it, was, it wasn't super big on the details. There was actually a few that popped out alongside it from various vendors as well. Um, but it still did highlight uh, that attackers were coming in by compromising Windows-based engineering workstations that are present in both IT and OT environments, and that they even saw them using exploits against ASRock motherboard drivers uh, with known vulnerabilities. And they listed CVE 2020-15368 as one of those as well. Uh, they went into details for those three main uh, vendors categories of uh, devices, and each actually had some slightly different impacts from these attacks and these toolkits they built. First one from Schneider Electric, uh, the APT tools there were able to communicate with nor the normal management protocols and over Modbus, could scan and identify all programmable logic controllers on a network, could brute force those PLC passwords using a word list, could do denial of service to prevent communications to them, sever connections entirely, which would force normal users to re-authenticate, potentially let them capture credentials, could send a packet of death to crash the PLC until a power cycle, and also just send custom Modbus commands to it as well. Uh, for the Omron APT tool, it could still scan and identify PLCs for that category of them, communicate and retrieve info from them, backup and restore arbitrary files from the PLC and load custom malicious agents that had additional capabilities. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of interesting. I, I mean, hopefully everyone's comparing this to Stuxnet, but a PLC programmable logic controller isn't just a standard computer. So just to give you an idea of the sophistication of these folks, everything that was said so far is like the OT, the Windows device that communicates with the PLC doing stuff to it. But in the Omron, there's literally a PLC-specific piece of malware. So, you know, that is something that the, these threat actors had to take, you know, know the PLC, know its operating system, and create something very specific for it. It's not just a, like a Windows program. Yeah, it's not Windows. It's even very rarely like Linux or anything. It's almost always like a custom OS. Yeah, sometimes it's right proprietary. Pretty nuts. Yeah. So anytime you have malware directly loaded on a PLC, it just elevates the sophistication of the threat actor for sure. 
Although even targeting the PLCs with external attacks too is interesting. Uh, the last one for that OPC UA servers is basically they're able to copy the functionality of those servers themselves and use previously compromised credentials to write whatever they want to those servers. Um, so alongside this alert, uh, both Mandiant and Dragos released kind of related reports on it with their analysis in these tools. They've each named them two separate names, Pipe Dream and InController. Um, and also ESET and the country of Ukraine put out a report about basically beating back another attack that they've dubbed InDestroyer 2. So InDestroyer 1 uh, being the, the malware variant that impacted heavily Ukraine's energy generation sector. Uh, what was it back in 2014, 2012? Quite a few years ago, I feel like. Um, basically coming back with a vengeance. Uh, Mandiant believes that this InController pipe dream toolkit um, is state sponsored and poses a pretty significant threat to Ukraine, NATO, and other nations involved in the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. While they didn't say exactly which state sponsor they believe was behind it, you can probably draw some lines to their conclusion there. Um, and then also kind of in somewhat related news to this, uh, the turbine manufacturer Nordex announced uh, that the shutdown they had two weeks ago from their uh, their main manufacturing area was actually due to a cybersecurity incident that now Conti, the ransomware family, has claimed credit for too. So, man, there's a lot of stuff targeting ICS lately, it feels like. I will say the Conti thing, I, I think it's cool to group two industrial control system attacks together, but I would argue the Conti one, totally unrelated in sophistication, likely to the first one, Pipe Dream. You know, it is, yes, it still affects ICS, but I presume that is more a a criminal threat actor just trying to make money and maybe more affecting the operational network of these, uh, what are they, wind turbines or whatever, uh, versus the actual specialized hardware. But yeah, ICS will be a target. And by the way, even for criminals, if it, if it is ICS, what a way to get a ransom, right? Those things, they're, you're losing money when they're not up, let alone the services they provide, which are pretty critical. That's the critical right in the name ICS. I mean, it's literally critical infrastructure. And this is what like CISA has been warning us about for the last few months, basically ever since the start, well, even before the start of this whole war in Ukraine. Like, I got to tell you, we, we've been warning people of it even before. Yeah. I, I mean, Stuxnet should have opened everyone's eyes to this. Yeah, that was ICS is all the same. A centrifuge to produce uranium is pretty much or the weaponize and, and increase the uh, the grade of uranium is pretty similar to a wind turbine or a water turbine or anything else. It's all the same proprietary types of technology. So I think you'd be living in a cave if you didn't realize that over a decade ago that ICS would be a target. But it does seem that to me, the only reason it wasn't in the news is it was like a target that most smart actors knew to leave alone because it's a pretty big deal. Good way to get the FBI knocking on your door. Yeah, let alone the whole world against you. But now it seems like between political things where nations literally are at war or the fact that criminals know that they can make a lot of money, it, it certainly seems like it's much more targeted in the last few years. Now, what about on the order of like like going after ICS manufacturers themselves? like? people to make this at the plcs or skated systems or skated devices like i honestly i'm on the fence of feeling supply like supply chain yeah, basically do we need a an updated uh 2022 security prediction halfway through of you know we feel like that potentially 
they're going to go after supply chain attacks against these now too. Like it feels like the, potentially the next avenue. That might be easier for for them. Yeah, because right now I would say ICS is a a high cost attack in that these are pretty proprietary and expensive pieces of equipment. So the threat actors had to buy very likely at least the Omron PLC device. Uh, maybe there's a virtual version I don't know of, but more than likely they bought and have these these things themselves, and that's how they learn to target them very specifically. So that's why we think sophistication is high, probably nation state. But shoot, if you can actually break into the vendor themselves and just booby trap the legitimate ones, fart, that gives you a kill switch for every company around the world that might use it. So it's something to worry about. I mean, if I were these vendors, I think at, at frankly, any vendor of technology or security should have their guard up. But uh, yeah, if you're an ICS vendor, you definitely want to protect your network because supply chain attacks seem to be a smart way to get in widely. And we haven't seen like, I mean, yes, it sounds like Ukraine has been trying to beat back a lot of these attacks against their grid. I mean, they're also trying to beat back literal missiles targeting them as well, too. So they've got yeah. some bigger fish to fry. So And been pretty successful, by the way, for both 100%, so far. Yeah. I mean, compared to the the scale of the people going after but them. But it does feel like, like the U.S. government is definitely ramping up their like, alerting on basically, hey, we need to be on the watch out even in our neck of the woods of potential attack, like retaliatory attacks against us at this point, too. Like It feels like we are pretty close to something like major potentially happening in the U.S., at least based off of how frightened or at least like on high alert CISA and the FBI seem if to be. If you've been paying attention to ISC, ICS CERT and, of course, the CISA and, and FBI, yeah, it shouldn't come as a fr- surprise. Hopefully we're cleaning up when we find them. But And so when it comes to our, uh, you know, our nuclear power plant operator listeners out there, some mitigations that you can potentially put into place. Like, obviously, it basically boils down to isolate these systems, your OT systems, from your traditional IT systems. Like, they specifically pointed out these engineering workstations that were pit, like, bouncing back and forth between them. And that is, it's breaking the air gap at that point, basically, where if you can infect one of those, it's how you get on the network. In fact, I'm fairly certain that is exactly how Stuxnet was able to... uh, come about in the first place too in fact i think it was the usb it was the usb key that made it into the air gap uh but either way yeah i, I mean air gaps existed for a reason and it was just this reason uh i i think that there can't be a perfect air gap anymore i do think a lot of ot networks are taking advantage of network connectivity for for good reason i mean there's benefit to it smart grids need feedback going both ways but i would say that you and I talk about least privilege and applying it internally, whether it's zero trust, whether it's creating a network that's white, it's it's deny everything and only whitelist. That's really hard, I guess, for a normal corporate network. But for an OT network, it should not be. And it's what you absolutely should do. You should absolutely, if you can't completely air gap, you better be egress filtering the heck out of that network. And more importantly, whitelist traffic only. The good thing about these OT devices is their traffic patterns and what they do is very specific. And it's only that they're single purpose. They're made just to do this one thing and to do it well. So it's the type of network where you should be pretty clear, easily be able to make at least network policies where only the traffic you expect 
gets through whatever the gateway is between the operational net the the ot network and the the you know corporate network sure there might be SCADA device there might be things you need to open for human interface devices and SCADA systems to get some feedback from the ot network but you can be pretty darn specific uh, about what that traffic is. So at the very least, do that. And for the traffic you do allow, because you know now we know these threat actors are starting to speak and pay attention to the very specific Modbus and other PLC or, or industrial protocols, uh, do try to scan in some way, whether it's via IPS or anomaly detection, the traffic that you do allow. And like to that end, like monitoring... ICS traffic, like CISA actually has an open source tool that they developed called the Industrial Control Systems Network Protocol Parser or ICS NPP. It's available on CISA's GitHub. Uh, it's uh, it's github.com slash cisagov slash ICS NPP. And it's basically designed to work with like a Zeek protocol or Zeek network traffic analyzer uh, to then it can handle everything from Modbus to DNP3 to BSAP, like a whole bunch of different protocols so that you then can look for that anomaly detection in there as well, too. Um, they actually, so you pointed out, you know, it, it's basically an, an inevitability that a lot of this uh, IT and OT networks are going to start bridging. And it feels like this time CISA's mitigation recommendations are heavily erring on the side of not necessarily even just prevention but a whole lot of recovery in there as well, too. So making sure that you've got good backups and restoration, making sure you've got a good cybersecurity incident response plan that you have tested regularly with stakeholders in IT. Um, and But still, you know, making sure you've got the strong protections in there of MFA and uh, air gapping or at least inspecting everywhere you potentially can. It's definitely, it's... It's not a new issue. And by the way, if you can air gap, do, yes. you know, I, I think me and Mark are saying it might be inevitable because there is benefit to network sometimes, even in ICS. But but if you can air gap, shoot, cutting the wire is always the best. 100%. So definitely check out that CISA alert if you happen to work in the industrial control field. It was, again, AA22-103A. Uh, lots of good TTPs and just overall resources in there as well, too. Uh, so moving on to kind of a fun, interesting research story to round out today. Uh, last week, a researcher posted their analysis of using right-to-left orientation special characters to spoof legitimate-looking URLs in the Signal messaging app. So we had uh, actually discussed RTLO or other uh, BIDI, as they're called, Unicode Bidirectional Algorithm Characters last November in the context of this research paper called Trojan Source out of the University of Cambridge. Uh, so if you remember, they found that you could use BIDI characters, uh, which control how programs parse. By the way, oh yeah, maybe you are getting it. I just wanted to say right to left. In layman speak, if, you're, if your language is Arabic or Hebrew, you read the other way around. So all these right-to-left Unicode things are simply to account for languages that go the other yeah, way. Basically, they help uh, programs that interpret text or interpret uh, Unicode-encoded characters to know how exactly to print them. They're special characters. They're hidden. Uh, you, it, it doesn't like pop up as anything in the actual text interpreter. But it tells it, do I write this next string of text from left to right, or do I write it from right to left? Uh, those researchers found, if you remember, uh, that you could actually use some of these bidirectional characters in the comments of source code 
to then hide malicious code, where basically if you're just reading it through your IDE, like uh, VS Code or Visual Studio, like it looks like a normal comment that is commented out of the code, but it's got some hidden bidirectional characters in there that when it comes time to compile it, the IDE actually recognizes those bidirectional characters and parses them and potentially then compiles in pieces of those comments into the actual code itself, uh, which is somewhat malicious, uh, very malicious, but somewhat difficult to detect then. So most messaging apps actually have some form of protection against uh, bidirectional characters to spoof messages. In fact, there was a lot of research back in 2020 on this topic where most of the major messaging apps like Telegram, Signal, Facebook, WhatsApp, whatever, patched similar vulnerabilities. Uh, this researcher, though, discovered CVE 2022-28345, which was a vulnerability in rendering these right-to-left orientation encoded URLs uh, that began with a non-breaking space and included a hash character in the URL. And it's actually this combination of characters and lack of characters that caused it to be vulnerable. Basically, the app renders the URL to the user as one string, while the actual URL that it navigates to when you click on it is the exact mirror. So they gave the example of uh, gepj.net slash selif pound sign slash moc.rugmi. So that is the actual URL it will navigate to, gep j.net slash blah, 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 blah. But it renders it as imgur.com slash hash sign files slash 10.jpg. So to the user, it looks like someone's sharing an image off of the image sharing platform Inger. But if you click on it, it goes to this uh, the exact mirror, the gepj.net slash whatever. Uh, they found that using that hash character and removing the HTTPS from the string caused Signal to link the hypertext URL and bypass a lot of their previous protections for these right to left orientation characters. So I wanted to share this because it's interesting. Like we've now seen a couple of research topics on using these not necessarily hidden, but not well known um, encoded special characters within the Unicode algorithm to make spoofing easier. And I felt like this is just yet another nail in the coffin of the old recommendation of, you know, if the e if the URL looks like it's somewhere legitimate, it's probably safe. Like these days, when it comes to phishing, it's no longer good enough to just hover over a URL and see, oh, it's going to Microsoft.com. That's probably okay. Because the reality is, like, it's so easy to spoof URLs or to abuse, like, cloud hosting systems to host whatever you want on a legitimate URL, like we see all the time. Um, that that advice on its own is no longer enough. Corey, any thoughts from you on where you think the next like research might take us with these bidirectional characters? What's something else we could potentially break with it? We got chat apps, we got source code. Man, maybe uh, maybe I'll start writing all my Facebook posts backwards instead and spoof people with that. Any, uh, I mean, anything you write stuff on a computer, you have to allow for Hebrew and Arabics, and I think Japanese has read the other direction. So there's a lot of different Unicode parsers for any app that has to have multiple languages. So I think uh, your guess is it could be anything. It, it, this is, like you say, I do think this is interesting. It's always interesting, but it's actually, I, I feel like using various Unicode issues lots of different uh 
different types of encoding that have to do with different languages, whether it's to get past malware inspection, to mess up attachments in email. It, 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 this feels kind of classic to me, even though it also is kind of a newish place. So, you know, I, I, I think we'll keep on seeing this happen. It is interesting, though, seeing Signal. I mean, I, I, as you may or may not have discussed, Signal's whole point is security. Uh, they're not just Isn't a Foxy Marlin spikes, baby. Yeah, it's not just a messaging app like WhatsApp. It's the one that was created to say, "Hey, we're the most secure and private one out there." Uh, and by the way, <laughs> Marlin, he he's like someone that should know all of these Unicode tricks just because I feel like he's probably <laughs> discovered them himself in other programs before. I, although I know uh, HTTPS and then TLS SSL was really his thing. Uh, but anyways, it, it is interesting seeing a, a security program being the one that, that kind of missed this little weird encoding. But at the end of the day, like, yes, there's security-focused chat message, but vulnerabilities happen. Like, everyone suffers from vulnerabilities. Yeah, they're going to happen to anyone. And the fact is there's so many types of encode. Like, a programmer is never going to know everything. <laughs> there's so many ways to encode things. You're, it's, it's with the complexity we have in our technology and world... You know, any program you have probably uses libraries that exist in all kinds of different places, let alone the Windows OS. The the complexity of all the places you need to track where these sorts of issues can happen is pretty large. Maybe we should just go back to like the, the late 90s, early 2000s in a world of, you know, no dynamic content. Everything's just HTML rendered on a web page and tables everywhere. I got to tell you, it certainly was easier to secure but the truth is technology progress and all the cool things that the new capabilities give us they're worth it society will ultimately be improved by it you know dynamic web pages allow for new healthcare apps that make uh, staying alive easier when emergencies happen so i wouldn't say go back uh, technology is not evil but as it gets more complex it certainly makes it easier for people to shoot themselves with it 100% uh, if you want to check out that research, though, and all the other research from this guy, uh, his website is sick.codes. Yeah, by the way, I assumed that alone was why you had this story. It wasn't because it was particularly, you just like any site that's called Sick Codes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. It's a cool name, by the way, Sick Codes. And by the way, what is the, that's because of the new global TLDs that you can now be, you know, it used to be we could just have country codes and dot coms and dot orgs, but now you can make a, a dot. Literally whatever. get dot so, ninja if you want. Sick codes. <laughs> yeah, that's where we should have it. Threatlab.ninja. There you go. All right, time to go register it. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions for today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.